Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 173 of Yoga Land. This week, first week back in 2020, first episode of season one. I'm so excited, and I'm talking to Jason. I talk a lot about the concept of self-compassion, which relates to the upcoming self-care and meditation course that I'm running. And you can find more information about that course at jasonyoga.com slash meditation. I hope you find this episode helpful. Here goes. Hi, Jason. Andrea, it's good to see you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Welcome to 2020. Welcome to 2020. Welcome to episode one of season one. Of Yoga Land 2020. This is just, I'm happy that it's 2020 mm-hmm. because I can honestly tell you that for the last couple of years, I just haven't really known what year it is. Yeah. And I don't know why. I think part of it is because I do a lot of scheduling like mm-hmm. 18 months in advance. Yeah, that's why. Mm. And I think the other reason is because I get hit in the head a lot <laughs> <That's> <laughs> playing a hockey. Not by, not by me. Not by me. But no, 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 no. Yeah. 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 Whoa. That was a jinx moment. We, jinx? we just said the exact same thing we twice did? at the same time. Yes. I have no recollection of that. Any. As further proof. <laughs> <laughs> show, I got to see you show off some of your uh, ice hockey moves just probably last week. It seems like it was, you know, a year ago. So we spent 12 lovely days mm-hmm. in the winter mm-hmm. in my family's home. Northern Ohio. Northern Ohio. And... You know, when we were there this summer, I just had the best time. Mm-hmm. And it was really difficult for me to leave like the last couple of times. But the last couple of times were summer. <laughs> Lesson learned. Yeah. It was a lot of in the house. I'm um, not going to say I told you so, but do we remember me bringing this up that winter is yeah. different than summer? Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. I know. But yeah, I did play a little hockey, which was awesome. Yes. And... uh a little rusty, but it is really interesting. I almost got into teacher's voice, didn't I? I don't know. I don't know. It's really interesting the things that you do a lot when you're a kid, how deeply ingrained they are in your body. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is, it's right there. Yeah. That game amazing. is right there. Yeah. And I'll see it actually, I'll see it in yoga students who have a gymnastics past or a dance past. But if they did a lot of training in their body at a young age, even if there's been a long hiatus, it's highly accessible muscle memory, you know, and it's a it's a really amazing thing to see the body be hardwired for something and your ability to have that recall even after an incredibly long period of time. That's why they're called formative years. Yeah. Because you are forming yourself yeah. around the things that you do. So can I do a really quick shameless plug? You may. Yes. So a bunch of the things that I have, the trainings that I have coming up are sold out. But looking way down the calendar, there's two things that are jumping out at me. October Maui Retreat. Oh, yeah. There's still some space. There's not a ton of space. But people should check that out and send me an email. Jason at jasonyoga.com goes right to me and I answer it. If you want to check that out, information is on our site. So find out the information first. Jasonyoga.com. And then the other thing is every couple of years, I teach a 200-hour program. The majority of the programs that I teach are advanced 300-hour trainings, but I'm teaching this in London for the month of August, 
And I'm teaching the majority of it, but I have two really awesome co-teachers that I have both taught quite a bit, but who are also, like I've said in the past, I think really wise and exceptional teachers on their own right, Adam Hoke and Adam Hustler. So that's in August in London, and you should check it out. So you can get all of these details about all of these things on our website. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into the topic, and the topic Mm. is self-care. No, well, no, self-compassion. Ah. (laughs) The topic is self-compassion. So you are doing a self what course? Oh my gosh. No, I'm not trying to be difficult. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to understand. So I'm starting January 13th. So next week, um, at the time of the airing of this this episode, I'm doing Start Your Year with Self-Care, yeah, which, which is a self-inquiry and meditation course. And the first week of the program, the focus is self-compassion. Right. So the broadest sort of topical angle is self-care. Yeah. But the lead into that is self-compassion. Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I decided to do this podcast about it because when I went back, I ran this course twice last year, and I went back and, you know, rewatched the podcasts that you and I did, and I re-listened to the meditations just to make sure everything was still, you know, as I wanted it to be. And the thing that really jumped out at me was that if people take anything away from this course, if they only take one thing away from this course, which I think you will take many things away from this course, but if you only take one thing away from this course, my hope is that it is learning about the concept of self-compassion, the importance of it, how to practice it, and why it's so important. So we're married. We're married for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is I think that you're pretty incredibly insightful about certain things, about everything, of course, but especially about certain things. Emotions, yeah. Yeah, especially emotions and your emotional insight into yourself and your emotional insight into others, right? So I'm interested in kind of your thoughts about the broad topic of self-compassion and specifically like in the context of self-care, why are you leading with self-compassion? And what is different between self-care and self-compassion? Sure. Okay. So I will say, first of all, one of the reasons that I am so like skillful and insightful around emotions and emotional life is because I was born an emotional child. <laughs> I really was. No, I know. Yeah, I really I know. was. Like I think that, you know, when you think about how so often our greatest challenges and our greatest difficulties become our greatest gifts. I think that's part of it for me. I just, I've always just held a lot of emotion within me. And so I knew from a really young age that I had to sort that out if I was going to live a contented life. And I started, I would say in my twenties going to therapy. And I think there is a lot of like positive regard that you can get from a therapist. But it wasn't until I combined that with yoga and meditation, which is where you can offer those things to yourself in an active way. It wasn't yeah. until I combined those two things that I feel like I can hold all of my emotions in just a much more skillful way. So that's that. In terms of, I think the question was, what's the difference between self Yeah, like the kind of two component components are... Number one, what do you see as the distinction between self-care and self-compassion? And then two, why is self-compassion 
kind of the keystone around which self-care is presented and worked with. So when I talk about self-care, I'm referring to anything that you do to help yourself be well. So in the course, I have a workbook and the workbook is organized around kind of like, what are the high level things that you do to be well? You know, what are the conceptual things? Like, who are you hanging out with? You know, who are you choosing to be in relationship with? And then there's sort of, it goes all the way down to the everyday things of, I like to, part of my self-care is getting up and having my hot cup of coffee every morning in my like nice china. So self-care is just a range of different things that you can do for your physical, emotional, mental well-being to care for yourself on a routine basis. Can I pause? Sure. So it's interesting is like, you know, I too am super emotional. I feel like I carry myself in a very even keel demeanor. And I think that people- And in time, in, inside your shitstorm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. But I also see that when I think of self-care, I think of it on a very sensory level. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I'm realizing about myself and which you just kind of brought up is like- For me, there's a huge mental and I would say intellectual component. Like if I am not doing things to stimulate myself intellectually outside of my business, I literally eat myself alive. Really? Yes. It's super important, right? This is one of the things that we've talked about for like my intellectual pursuits or my other pursuits, physical pursuits is like, it's really important for me to be cultivating things that aren't the specifically yoga subject. Yoga for me bleeds into everything, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm reading a book about negotiation or, you know, if I'm reading a book about politics, one way or another, that will trigger some thoughts I have about the yoga practice, one way or another. It just all feeds into You When you were reading that biography of George Washington recently, you just just started thinking about yoga. Exactly. (laughs) You know what? I had the weirdest, most like I had a moment of like realizing I am getting to be a a much older man. Okay. I became interested in learning about what happened in London in World War II. And I was like, I was I Googled it. I was like, I want to learn more about the Blitz. You know? And I was like, oh my God, like it's this is a train. It's going that way. But the point that I'm trying to make is like, I see this now in the context of self-care. Like I see me tending my, not just my sensory and my emotional needs, but my actual intellectual needs. Like I'm going to add that to the workbook. I hadn't thought about that. So I do a meditation on creativity and I talk a lot about creativity. And I think because that's what stimulates me mentally, but I hadn't thought about it in like a broader, because I did have some people last year say to me, like, I don't think I'm a creative person. I don't really. And my response to that is, Everyone is inherently creative. You just don't think of yourself that way. But but I think hearing you say this, it, it can be broadened into like what feeds you mentally and intellectually. Totally. But this has nothing to do with self-compassion, but go no, ahead. No, it has nothing to do with self-compassion. Yeah. But I wanted to put that in there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of connecting the dots, 
between, you know, self-care and self-compassion, why I decided that this was so important. I mean, it's a few reasons. One of the reasons is simply that I think that meditation is often presented as like a very austere practice where we think there's kind of two ways it's presented, either in the kind of strict, disciplined, austere way, or lately in the last, you know, five to 10 years, it's sort of like this tool to become more productive yeah, and to yeah, achieve yeah. more and to you know it's like being used at google and it's being used you know and, and which is there's nothing wrong with that it's there's good it's actually good of course but i do think for me in order to make certain habits stick you just have to feel a personal connection and so what i say in the course is that i want people to see meditation and self-care as an opportunity to deepen the relationship with yourself It's really about having a personal relationship with yourself. And so part of that, I think it's just so common for everyone is to berate yourself. Yes. Right? It's just like, it's just a natural part of the human condition. And if you don't shine the light of awareness on it, it can rule your life unwittingly. And so... Anybody who's at all familiar with with Buddhism knows that compassion is like compassion, not self-compassion, but compassion is like the, a keystone in Buddhist practice. And compassion is like is simply the the desire to wish someone outside of yourself well, to wish them that they do not suffer. But I think in order to get there, in order to be able to extend that to other people, you have to look at how you're treating yourself. If you're stuck in a pattern of speaking unkindly to yourself or not extending kindness toward yourself, you can't do it for others. I would say the other thing that got me really hooked into it is just the research that's been done. And I first started speaking about self-compassion, I mean, gosh, was it two years ago now? Catherine Priori, our friend who is a yoga teacher, invited me to actually do a talk at Google. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, but it was it was like a weekend. It wasn't for Google employees. It was for educators. And I wanted to speak about self-compassion because I think that it's educators are caretakers. They're taking care of everyone else. And there's high burnout in that profession, just as the, I'm sure it's similar for yoga teachers. And so this idea of extending that care for yourself seems like a great place to start. You brought up Buddhism and you brought up self-compassion practices. And as you were talking, it reminded me of one of the books that I work with in my advanced training. It's probably in my fundamental training too, is Buddha's Brain. Yes, by, Rick Hansen. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I just find that that book, if you haven't read it, those of you that are listening, it's so helpful in understanding some of the basic neurological reasons why all of us as humans are extremely primed to have that negative self-talk and some of the things that we can do about it. He says we're like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. Exactly. And the solution that he offers is self-compassion practice yeah, for and, tamping down negativity. Yeah. And the process of is a chapter called taking in the good. Mm-hmm. And so that is a really good example for me of helping me be more self-compassionate mm-hmm. is to realize that not only 
are some of the challenges that I face within myself, universal elements of the human condition. But there's actually specific biological determinants that that make us that way, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that we can't work to transcend them. But I think when we understand that there's actually some reasons why we have that little negative bug inside our head. Yeah. You know, when we think it shouldn't be there instead of, right, instead of thinking, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Mm -hmm. Just accept that, yes, in fact, you feel this way. There are reasons that you feel this way. So now what are you going to do about it? So rather than kicking stones that you're having a certain experience, acknowledge the experience and begin to work through a process of managing it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you say that because one of the the main researcher that I have whose work, like I've read a ton of her work is Kristen Neff has done a lot of research on self-compassion and she has a three prong definition for it. So the first is extending kindness toward yourself the way you would toward a really good friend or a baby or a dog, just simply extending kindness toward yourself. The second is understanding that your behaviors are normal and common. So not feeling isolated about your feelings. And then the third is having a a balanced reaction to adversity. So when I, I didn't even know how I stumbled across her work, you know, over a year or two ago, when I read that definition, I thought this is exactly what yoga and meditation have brought to my life. The ability to stop the relentless narrator that's negative toward myself uh, the ability to relate and connect to other people and know that I'm not crazy and alone and all, and all of my fears and anxieties. And the ability to just stop and pause when I'm feeling really strong emotions and allow those emotions to be there without always acting on them and reacting to them. Right. So, I mean, I feel like I kind of have an answer to this, but one of the things that comes up for me, if I were to be a critic Right. If I try to apply some sort of like critical mindset to the process of self-compassion, I could say, well, you know, doesn't self-compassion lead to apathy? Mm-hmm. You know, does it inhibit growth? Right. Does it slow one's internal process mm-hmm. to always make amends with the way you are, mm-hmm. even if you're functioning in a non-optimal state? Mm-hmm. So I could say to myself, right, I could say to myself, well, you know, I am really negative and reactive and judgmental and that's okay. That's just the way I am. You know, I had a complicated childhood and my, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm yeah. just this way like, and that's like an you okay it, way. You, you fear that it, it could be making excuses for yourself. Yes. I'm playing that role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, it's, and a, this it's a was, good question. And this was a role that was my existing belief system for a very long period of time because I was more of a rational Western, like, empiricist. You grew up playing ice hockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I grew up in the Midwest. I'm I'm sure you were told to suck it up more than one time in your life. And do I believe that many times we just need to suck it up? Yes, absolutely, a thousand percent. But- that is less my feeling now, but but yeah. how do but how do we deal with this okay. potential issue of well, if you're too self compassionate, right. then you're just going to make excuses for yourself, and you're not going to actually make the necessary changes to 
have a more optimal being or behavioral pattern. Right. Okay. So I just want to say in bringing up this, this idea of like, I used to believe, you know, that you had to suck it up and I don't anymore. I I just want to like point out that nothing is all or nothing. Right. Right. So maybe if a coach told you to suck it up in the moment, in that moment, it was really important. If you sucked everything up in your entire life and you never explored your feelings underneath that. Done. (laughs) Getting back to my My roots. (laughs) You would probably be a very angry, tense person. Don't know what you're talking about. So I think what I found really interesting about this research when I first started reading it is how it applies to kids. Like she did a bunch of studies with teenagers. And I think that you and I were raised in the generation where self-esteem was regarded as sort of this optimal optimal thing that you strive for. You don't didn't want to have low self-esteem. Low self-esteem was a bad thing. And so she did a study where she compared self-esteem with self-compassion. And was self-esteem contingent upon certain success objectives. No, I think it was self-reported. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so so what they found and I I did find my notes here is that self-esteem did not appear to improve academic performance and it didn't appear to improve leadership skills or prevent children from smoking, drinking, taking drugs, engaging in early sex. Bullies are as likely to have high self-esteem as others. And in fact, hassling other people and putting them down is one way that bullies feel good about themselves. And then people with high self-esteem are just as prejudiced, if not more so, than those who dislike themselves. They're also just as aggressive and engage in antisocial behavior like cheating as often as people with low self-esteem do. So this thought for me, you know, it's like, okay, so this whole idea of encouraging high self-esteem is kind of a failed experiment. And so she's just really proposing that this is another way to nurture children. And again, from this same study, the results were that children who cultivated higher levels of self-compassion, it was linked to increased happiness, optimism, curiosity, and connected connectedness decreased anxiety, depression, rumination, and I think most importantly to what the question that you were asking, decreased fear of failure. Mm. So because people who be able to speak kindly to themselves when they fail, they're not kicking stones. They're not saying like, oh, I'm so terrible. I'm never going to do this. I'm just going to give up because I'm a bad person. They bounce back more easily. They're more resilient and they're more balanced in the face of adversity. So it's not really about giving up. It's really simply just about a different way of relating to yourself. Right. One of the simple examples that kind of comes up for me is, and I think any process of maturing helps us with this, but maturing in the context of a yoga practice or a meditation practice gives us good self-awareness and insight as to how our mind is behaving at any given time. And through the process of, practicing yoga and just growing up a little bit, I think that we see this kind of like you said earlier, it's not all or nothing, but it's also not one thing or another thing is that multiple things coexist simultaneously. And we have to take into consideration the profound complexity of being. Yeah. So you can look at, I'll give you the simplest example, right? Look at like 
me doing a forward bend. Without any hesitation, I can tell you that when I am doing a forward bend, I am trying to invoke some sort of change. I am trying to create more length where I have specific restriction. I'm trying to create more mobility where I have a specific restriction. I'm trying to change the situation that my body is presenting me so it's more commensurate with how I want my body to behave. And at the same time, I'm also looking to appreciate and accept my forward bends and my body for the way that it currently is, Mm -hmm. right? So when you do a yoga practice, no one's doing a hip opener or a hip strengthener to have no outcome, Mm -hmm. right? Anyone that's doing any given posture is looking for some specific sensory or quality change. That doesn't mean that we have to beat ourselves up for the way that we are, right? Right. So we can have both of those things. I can look to simultaneously create more range of motion and more freedom in my hamstrings while at the same time appreciating that I have hamstrings and I go this far and I can breathe. Mm -hmm. And I would take it another step further, which is if all of our contentment and happiness and self-esteem is contingent on hitting our goals, Mm -hmm. that is an endless, bottomless, and insufferable pit. Mm -hmm. Because the moment then we hit the goal, we will just set the new goal. Every time we hit a goal, we'll just simply move the goalposts, Mm -hmm. right? And so we want to be able to have that ability to nurture both ways of being, that way of being that appreciates the complex and sometimes contradictory way that we already are, Mm -hmm. while at the same time taking our own insight and and making the the moderate and reasonable changes that we need to make over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it just brought me back to the thought of, like I said, I, I think of meditation as a deepening of a relationship, the relationship with myself. And there are no guarantees in life and everything is constantly changing. But the one thing that doesn't change in this period of embodiment in my body is that I'm in relationship with myself. Yeah. So to me, it's like if I can start foundationally from treating myself, holding myself in high regard, regardless of my successes or failures, regardless of um, you know my emotional state regardless of my achievements. That's a gift. That's huge. Yeah. So let me ask you just one or two more questions. Mm -hmm. Just really simple, straightforward. Where do you struggle most with negative self-talk? What kind of topics are you for yourself just hardest on that you feel like are things that you're continuing to work on and grow? I mean, can I talk about things from the past? It's it's really much more sure. potent for yeah, me yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah, things yeah, from the sure. past. Now it's just it's such an ingrained part of me to like yeah. notice when I'm being hard on myself or notice when I'm despairing and just to kind of laugh at it and be like, oh, I mean, this is I'm fine. It's yeah. okay. But I would say in the past, I'm just thinking back to, you know, when these practices were first introduced to me. I would say that I, my biggest issue was just that I felt like I was an overly emotional person Mm -hmm. who couldn't function the way other people did. Mm -hmm. So 
if we look at her definition of self-compassion, the place where I was not self-compassionate is that I separated myself from others. I felt I felt like I was weird because of my natural state of being. So it wasn't the state itself. It was the separation. I think so. Yeah, that's interesting. It was like the way that I saw my, yeah, I saw myself as different, as outside of the norm. Right, right, right. As right, a, right. And I, you know, that's a, an isolating feeling. Yeah. As opposed to feeling like this is so normal. This is so part of what people go through. All of these things, even if you don't see it in everyday life when you're walking down the street, even if people aren't open about it, they don't talk about it, everybody goes through hardship and people experience intense difficulty and tragedy and emotion. Um, sometimes, like me, they experience intense difficulty and emotion without the tragedy. Totally, right? totally. So I think that was really where these practices just shifted things for me. I, it just shifted things for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. How about you? I mean, I think both past and present, right? Like, a couple things come up. It's like, body image, mm-hmm. right? Trying to not have a negative body image about being not so much now, but phases of my life, like a skinny guy, mm-hmm. you know, like, especially as an athlete, mm-hmm. you know, because I think you're always kind of comparing yourself to your cohort mm-hmm. and to the people you admire, you know? And so my cohort was always was men mm-hmm. who were who were athletes, right? And so I was always good at sports and I still am at the ones that I do, but I don't want to say I lacked in size, but I well, didn't I mean you had really tiny heels. <laughs> that's a that's an insight. We've already joke. talked about this before, yeah. but your mother brought it up again on this trip. Yes. That Jason had such tiny heels as a child that so they if, couldn't find shoes to fit yeah. him. <laughs> so if any of you can parse that out out there Uh, And maybe start a GoFundMe for (laughs) clearly my need for a massive amount of therapy just given that one thing. (laughs) But yeah, I think that that was one thing, you know? I think another thing, it's kind of interesting that when I get to this day, when I get down on myself, and you see it, but I don't know if you put this together, uh, is anytime I have an injury. Mm. Anytime I have an injury or sick or I feel like I can't perform I feel a grave sense of personal danger and threat. I feel like if I can't physically do what I want to do, Mm -hmm. that doesn't just feel like an inconvenience. That feels like a threat to my identity and existence, how I see myself. You know what I mean? And so I don't get like a sad feeling around. I get an angry feeling. Well, yeah, but that's because like that's, anger that's how, for you is masking your fear. Uh, it's part you. and parcel with my yeah. fear, for yeah. sure. For when sure. you feel fearful, it comes out, it presents as anger. Sure. Yes, I know this about you. This is why we are okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not like violently angry. You just, you get like no. sharp and- yeah. yeah, 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 for yeah. sure, yeah. for sure. I think the other thing, if we can continue to indulge me and my yeah, mercies- absolutely. I don't know if it's a fear of failure or if it's a fear professionally of I don't doubt myself as a teacher at all. I know I'm not the perfect teacher for everyone, but I know I do what I can do as well as I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I continue to grow and evolve and work hard where I have to work through some process 
is when I start to get worried that what I have to offer may not continue to be in demand. You know what I mean? So it's not so much a feeling of negative self-talk. It's a feeling of negative internal framing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you sort of I, fear disintegration. Yeah, like, yeah. And I don't, so, okay. So I think every yoga teacher can can identify with this, right? So it's like the most simple example is, let's say you've been having like, lots of people have been coming to your classes and you've been having a lot of regulars. And then you go a couple of weeks and those regulars aren't there and those class size drop. When that happens with me, and it doesn't happen to me as much as it used to happen to me, but when that kind of thing happens to me, I don't start to think, oh my God, I'm a bad teacher. I don't have that negative self-talk. I think, oh my God, the thing that I teach is no longer of relevant interest to those around me. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much a negative self-talk of, oh, you're bad and not good. It's a negative framing of the broader context in which I am placed. Sure, sure. You reminded me that if there's anything that still is an issue for me, it's body image. So, you know, that is still something that I have to consciously say to myself whatever it is that I say to myself, I don't need to share it with the whole world. But that that is one area where I have to consciously turn the thought around, turn the thought around. And the benefit of all of this is that when you develop consciousness and awareness around your areas of challenge, you're just not as hooked into it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, just yeah. not as hooked by yes. it. Right. It doesn't have you by the throat. Right. You can say, like, this is just my patterning. Hello, patterning. You can kind of like shrug your shoulders and be like, all right, I'm a human being. There we go. Yep. Just how human of me. So I think that that is just a huge, hugely different way to live your life, having that awareness. I think the last part about this too is it's so clear to me that anyone that has body issue challenges is not alone, right? You were talking about that aloneness, right? right? Like, I don't know anyone that doesn't deal with these challenges. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That isn't to say that I think everyone is totally driving themselves nuts from day to day to day, right? But it's to say like, it is a profoundly human thing that is both probably primal in addition to obviously being extremely cultural, that we deal with some sense of discomfort about how other people that don't know us perceive us. Yeah. And that is a very primal thing. So, you know, no matter who you are dealing with that challenge, like we're all, we all deal with that challenge. Right. I mean, this is why I appreciate mindfulness practice so much and Buddhist practice and yogic practice, because all of these things are part of the human condition, right? What you were describing, the fear of, the way it came to me is like the fear of disintegration. Like when you can't be physical in the way that you're usually physical, it's a feeling of I'm not in control of my body. Oh my God, someday I'm not going to be in control of my body all the time. Oh my God, someday I'm going to die. Like you can pretty much take anything and trace it all the way down to that. And the fact of the matter is, 
that we are all going to die. And the fact of the matter is that these practices talk about these things, bring them to light, and give you like skills for dealing with yeah. being alive. And yeah. it's just, to me, it's just like, it's the art of living. And that's the thing that I get the most excited about. And I nerd out about I, the most, I think, the, probably to the equivalent of the way you nerd out about anatomy and and all of the thing, all of the work that you've been doing with like the traumatologists. And then the, like, yeah, yeah. I literally start reading anatomy books and I'm like, I glaze. I just don't at this yeah, point yeah, in my yeah. life and my practice. It's just not, it doesn't drive me. It doesn't make me Well, you me know, feel. it's an, it's an intellectual access point for me. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. I know yeah, yeah, yeah. you. I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to pigeonhole But no, you. I know. I know. But this is just, yeah. Anyway, this is just for me. What keeps me going. One more thing. Mm-hmm. To mostly not related to this topic. When we were in Ohio for two weeks, mm-hmm. both of us did at least one thing that we were proud of with regards to personally denial, denying some of the temptations. Yes. In that. In the spirit home. of self-care, really. In the spirit like, of truly, self-care. Truly, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You want for me to you, say what, what I did? It? Yeah. I did not eat a single potato chip. Now, I think the context that people need to understand is that my mom, who is an amazing person on so many levels, gets 95 to 99% of her daily caloric intake Mm -hmm. solely in different kinds of chips. Yeah. Well, I like to say that the Cindy Crandall diet is the all potato, all the time diet. So it's either French fries potato chips, or baked potato. Yes. Those are the three food groups for Cindy Crandall. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, Cindy Crandall, my mother, was a marathon runner. She's very slender. She's she's not only slender, she's in amazing shape, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, she's very strong. She swims miles. She's super strong. She walks dogs. She looks great. Mm -hmm. She's 70. Mm -hmm. And you and I are really not exaggerating. In this conversation. Oh, no. 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 I would also say that if we've paid very close attention to her beverage consumption, have you ever seen her drink water? No. What have you seen her drink? Because she drinks one thing. Coffee. Yes. So the first half of the day is coffee. The second half of the day is decaf. I never realized. It's 100%. Well, sometimes. And then she has the occasional beer. The occasional beer. You know, I mean, she'll have like a half a beer. Yeah. Coffee and It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And for Why did me- we bring this up? Oh, your thing. Yeah. And just to end with some levity, because I'm a Midwesterner, I can't help it. I think for me, it was the same. Like I had, I didn't really shut down the sweets so much in that home, but I knew that if I had chips while there, like are the Fritos or the, and we're talking Fritos, we're talking Doritos, everything, we're taking Cheetos. We're taking- They have the Ruffles. They have the Pringles. They have- every, Bugles. Remember that giant oh, thing? Of, that gosh. thing of Bugles- I have never seen a bag of bugles I didn't, that size on this in trip. My life. I didn't see them. Thank God. I showed it to you. Oh, I must. I blocked it out. You blocked it out. I it was that first out, night. I pulled it out. I can't deal. I knew if that door. I knew if the chip. I knew if the salty, fatty, crunchy, crunchy thing snap, came exactly. out. It was over. Over. Because where is that going to take me? That's going to take me heavier into sweet land. <gasps> also, once you go to Ruffles. You can't help but go to Fritos. You can't. And once you go to Fritos, it is all 
over. It's over. It's over. It's over. We really made, I, I can't, it's funny because your mother has candy and dishes around the house mm-hmm. every time we're there. Cookies, everything, everything, everything. Costco cakes and chips. And just this one simple thing that we did for our self-care, not doing the chips, not it doing the helped chips. us with everything. Big time. So high five. Done. Good job. Likewise. If you want to join the program, you still can. <laughs> Go to. And you know what? We won't talk about chips, I promise. Can I say something? Mm-hmm. If you're eating chips, it's okay. Oh my gosh, totally. I, you know no what? No judgment about no chips. No judgment. It's about us. And here's what I'll say is, I'll buy a bag of potato chips once in a while. Once in a while, I'll buy a bag of potato chips, but not a big bag, a single serving. Yeah. Because if that stuff is around, it's just a horror show. All right, we're going to do one more chip thing. If you're going to buy any bag of potato chips, what are Uh, you going to buy? Me? Yeah. Okay, let's start. I'm not going to start with brand, but I'm going to say- I'm going to go brand. It's. I'm going to say it is just a plain sea salt chip. Really? Yeah, I don't want flavored chips. No, no, I don't want flavored chips either, but I'm going to go kettle chips. Yeah, kettle chips will typically Come be on, yeah. you guys. So yeah. go enjoy your kettle chips. Those Cape, Cape like, Cod chips are good. I too. hope this is not the first podcast where you want to go <laughs> like gorge yourself on chips. That was not the intention. But if you want to join the self-care and meditation course, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash meditation. And... It's discount at a discounted price until Wednesday, January 8th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can't ask me after that to discount it because I literally do not know how because I am on a brand new course platform system. So you got to get there before 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time, January 8th. Is that true? When is this podcast going to become available? Dude, do you think I haven't planned all this out? No, I have. Okay, love you guys. Bye. (laughs) You are just unreal. (laughs) 